Hey guys, it's Lindsay with NBC Media. Thanks for listening to our podcast and be sure to look at our website for events that you can get involved in. See you next Sunday. If you would turn your Bibles, please, to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, as we continue on our series of the book of Philippians. And today our message is entitled, Love, Humility, and Unity. Love, Humility, and Unity. You know, I used to sing in a group, and I don't really have an introduction or necessarily a closing on this sermon today. Uh, I spent all my time working on the meat, the points of the sermon. But you know, when I got out of the Air Force and I came back home and uh, we had the opportunity to uh, start singing with a gospel group, a gospel group called Unity. And one of the things that I found out very quickly, even though that our name was Unity, we weren't always unified. And I found out very quickly that the group... If we were not unified in what we were doing, things would tend to fall apart. And eventually the group did fall apart. I've been in the ministerial business for some years now, and I know this to be true also for a church. We may not agree on all things. But we will and should agree in substance, in doctrine, and in theology. And if we don't, we will have problems of getting things done. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us today. Last uh, few weeks we were talking about happiness. And then he goes right on to kind of continue the thought, but talking to us about love about humility, and how those two items affect unity. So follow along as I read these verses, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll kind of break those apart as we go along. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through or who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he but, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you so much for again for this opportunity that you've given me to preach this message that you laid upon my heart. Lord, may it fall upon the ears and hearts that are listening. 
Most of all, Lord, may you impress upon us the need for love, for humility in our own lives, and through those, uh, as we grasp those items, we gain unity. Bless the reading of your word, in precious name I pray, amen. So we're going to look at the first point, having the same mind, focusing on verses 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4. Now I'm going to be honest with you, these verses are kind of challenging. Paul tells us that by accepting God's selfless acts of love for us, we are to practice that same love in our own relationships with others in the same way. How in the world can we accept God's gift of love to us and then turn around and treat people the way we sometimes do? Now maybe you're saying, oh, I don't do that. Do you treat everyone that you're in contact with the same way that God loves you? I don't. You know, there are just some unlikable people out there. Some people just get under my skin. Don't they you? Come on, it's church, don't lie. There are some people get under my, my skin. Aren't you glad today that, that there are not people that get under God's skin? Because I'll tell you what, there are some times I probably would. Now, there's sometimes that we don't make God happy, but He always loves us. Always loves us. Why is it that many times we accept God's conditional love for us, but we find no obligation to do the same for others? And what happens is when it comes to our relationship, we set aside. God's definition of love and we insert our own definition. I think the most common way that we substitute our own is we make love or a love or a I'm sorry, love a feeling or an emotion. You know, I, 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 I've been talking a lot about um, uh, doing some premarital counseling. We've got a couple folks that are going to be getting married here soon, been talking to them. And that's one of the things that we talk about the most. Love is not a feeling or an emotion. Because if you base love on that, your marriage isn't going to last very long. How often does our love for someone depend on whether they make us feel good about ourselves and whether they are attractive or smart back to the marital issue I think the reason the divorce rate is so high in this country is because someone sold us on a notion that says that true love will always be accompanied by an emotional high and once that goes away well then it's time to go get packing you don't believe me? Still, close to 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. 
And I firmly believe it's because we don't know how to love each other. We don't even know how to like each other very much. How can you learn and learn to love your spouse, that person that you married, you don't like them? Or if you don't like a lot of the things they do. How in the world can we have a church that says we love each other when we don't like the person sitting on the other side of the aisle? Now, okay, I'm not sure that that happens here, but I've sure been in churches like that. I've told you before, I can remember being staff at a church where a person on that side of the church hadn't talked to a person on this side of the church in years. And when it all came down to it, they couldn't even remember why they were mad at each other. And then they wondered why the church wasn't doing an awful lot spiritually. Now we'll talk about unity here in a minute, but I mean, this is the beginning of it. Without love, there's no unity, right? There may be even couples here today. I don't know. We don't have an awful lot of folks. I was, when I was writing this, I was thinking we were going to have a, more people. But there may be even some couples in our church today that are at odds with one another because the other person just doesn't do it for them anymore. What if God's love were that way? What if God's love were based on emotional feelings for us? Do you think He would have ever came to earth to win the love of a bunch of sinful, temperamental humans who can't decide whether or not they'll be faithful to Him? I can't explain it, but God's act of love did not begin out of a feeling. I don't know what made God choose to love us. I just know it wasn't based on emotion or it wouldn't have lasted very long. Let's look at our next point, withholding love. Withholding love. There's another way that we warp the true definition of love. And this is the one, this one really concerns me because it's really subtle. The misuse of love comes as we choose to withdraw our love for some, from some. There are a lot of people here who are feeling pretty good about themselves right now because you are a very loving person to those whom you've chose to love. What about the people who at least in your mind don't deserve your love? Maybe it's someone who's done you wrong and you've solved that problem by just ignoring them. I made be talking to some of the people in this room right now. I, I don't know. Maybe you'll go out of your way to avoid some person or some person, uh, maybe in this room you'll go out of the way to avoid them because of what that person 
has done to them sometime in the past. As I kind of Turner talked about earlier, that the person on this side of the room, and it was a much bigger room than this one, but the person on this side of the room hadn't talked to this person for on this side of the room because of something happening a long time ago and they don't even remember what it was. And we justify it because they deserved it. They hurt me. Friends, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little secret. And I've shared this with some other people. You ready? Get over it. There's no place in the body of Christ for people who have grudges against each other. Get over it. I think God has a real problem with people who use righteous indignation to justify withdrawing love from someone. The problem is we usually go a lot further than just staying away from them. Before long, we try tearing down their reputation. We try talking about them behind their back. I I know what happens. I've been in Baptist church all my life. I know what happens. We get angry with somebody and what's the first thing we do after not talking to them for a while? We start tattling. We start tearing down their reputation. I'll never forget, my mom used to tell me all the time, we do not lift ourselves up by tearing someone else down. But yet it sure happens a lot. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Remember, that's the love chapter, right? He says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. If the greatest power on earth is the power to love, then couldn't it possibly be argued that the greatest destructive power we can have on earth is to withhold love? I am a firm believer that the reason that many churches close their doors, it's not because of finances. It's not because of low attendance. Well, it probably is because of low attendance because people who walk in the door can tell real quickly that there's people that don't love each other. The lack of love, in my opinion, and in other books, things that I've read, is the main cause that churches close their doors and get along with each other. I found this little illustration that I wanted to read to you. It's called Pursuing a Princess. The great Dutch philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. I have no idea. I've messed it all up. Uh, illustrates the passage we just read with a story about a prince in search for a future queen. One day while the prince was running an errand in a local village for his father, he passed through a poor section of the city. And as he was passing through, he happened to see a beautiful young maiden. She was poor and lower class, but she was absolutely beautiful. 
After passing through the village several times, he found he was falling in love with her. But he had a problem. How would he go about winning her hand in marriage? He could simply order her to marry him, but he wasn't just seeking a queen. He was seeking a soulmate. If he coerced her to love him, he would never know if she really loved him for who he was or just because of the splendor of his wealth. So the prince came up with another solution. He took off his kingly robe and put on a garb of a peasant. He moved into the village and began to live among the people. He shared their interests and their concerns, and he talked their language. This was no more. Uh, this was no mere disguise. It was a new identity. Over time, he was able to see the young girl. It wasn't. It wasn't instantaneously, but it, but in time, the young woman grew to love the prince. She loved him because he first loved her. And so Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. Why? So that you, you and me, might know him. So that you... And I might have a loving relationship with him. And he might have a relationship with you. He did it so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Let's look at our next point. We'll call that selfless love. Selfless love looking mostly at verses 6 through 8 here, 6 through 8. The second chapter of Philippians shows us that God's love is an entirely selfless love, and we see that in verse 6. Let's look at that verse again. Paul says uh, that Jesus Christ, who through he was in, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. God. Now I'm going to be honest with you, you can go to a several different commentaries and there may be several different interpretations of this set of scripture. And there's been some debate on what it actually means. But I tend to take the uncomplicated road. And I'm going to just, I, instead of trying to put it in my own vernacular, I just copied it out of, the, uh, out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And it said, Paul begins by saying without a doubt that Jesus was, was in his very nature God. He was not, he wasn't just a good man or a prophet. He was eternal God who always was and always will be. So being God, Paul says he did not consider it equality with God something to be grasped. Paul said, what Paul is saying here is, in other words, Christ did not hesitate to set aside his self-willed use of deity when he, became, when he became a man. As God, he had all the rights of deity, and yet during his incarnate state, he surrendered his right to manifest himself visibly as the God of all splendor and glory. Instead of being like earthly rulers who seized and hoarded their power 
for their own good. Jesus let it go for you and for me. Yeah, he was still God. He was fully God. But yes, he was fully man. And he felt all the same I want to say struggles, but he didn't succumb to them like a man would, but he still felt those things that we felt. He felt hurt. He felt when people were treating him badly. He still loved them. He never sinned, but he felt those things just like you and I. Now look at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men. And then in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I believe that this is the foundation to understanding true love. God gave it all up for us. He chose not to stay into heaven, but to come down to earth, not as a ruling factor, but as a Savior and a servant. He chose to willingly give up His power so that we might share in a love relationship with Him. And I like what it says there at the very end of verse 8, where it says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul here is emphasizing that one of the most horrific ways to die at that time was to be hanged on a cross. The cross was reserved for the worst of the offenders. And yet Christ chose to die that horrific death for you and I. Showing us how much He really loved us. The all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who sees the past, the present, and the future all at once. The God who is the perfect standard of righteousness and justice. The God who answers to no one and can use His power however He pleases. That same God gave it all up in an effort that you might Love Him back. God's greatest and most earnest desire, at least I, I truly believe this, most earnest desire is that you will choose to enter into a loving relationship with Him as your personal Savior. Now as I look around this room today, I think all of us have made that commitment. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. If you have never 
entered into that relationship, today is the day that you can do that. At Connie's funeral, I am rather unapologetic that I am going to offer some sort of gospel message when I preach. And generally, the families are appreciative of that. And it wasn't any different at Connie's funeral. But I hit hard on the fact, because I knew there were some people in the room that had never accepted Christ as their personal Savior. I hit hard on that. Now I can remember at other funerals, I can remember one guy coming up to me rather in disgust. He said, if I wanted to hear a sermon, I'd go to church. And I told him, I said, well, maybe you need to go. Some family member that I had never met. I'm going to be unapologetic about this thing and I'll be unapologetic in church. We are not going to hear some fluffy little message that makes you feel good. We want to hear messages that encourages you to go spread the gospel. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights. Oh, here's a plug for Wednesday night. Come and join us. We're trying to figure out what kind of church maybe are we. Are we the one of the two that didn't have any, any uh, warnings? Or are we the other, like the other five that, boy, they hit them hard? Come and join us. I read about this. I, I used to read, we, I used to get these, <laughs> these uh, comic books. And my family didn't like the standard Iron Man, Batman, Superman kind of comic books. And I didn't have any money to buy them. But back then when I was a kid, we used to get, there used to be these comic books out written by different evangelists. And I can remember Tony Campolo. You've heard that name before out in New York. Now, I'll tell you what, there's not everything I agree with Tony Campolo about. But this one I, I think is pretty good and I think it's a good... I, I think it's a, a good testimony to us. Tony Campolo tells about a story of a New York City pastor who chose to take a funeral that no other minister would take. The man who died was a homosexual and died of AIDS. The minister agreed to do the funeral. When he got to the graveside, he discovered an audience of 30 homosexual men. He conducted the funeral, and when he finished, he motioned for everyone to be dismissed, but no one moved. So he turned back to the crowd of men and said, Is there anything else I can do for you? And one of them said, Yeah. They usually read the 23rd Psalm at these things. You didn't read the 23rd Psalm. Could you please read it? So he read the 23rd Psalm. Then another man said, There's something in the Bible about nothing separating us from the love of God. Can you read it? And so the man read the 8th chapter of Romans that said nothing can separate us from the love of God. And for about an hour, the men asked the pastor to read from the Bible. The pastor was surprised to find that these men were hungry and desperate to hear about the love of God. To hear that nothing, nothing could separate them from the love of God. He wanted to ask them why, if they were spiritually hungry, they didn't just go to church. But he didn't have to ask. It was obvious why. God may have loved them, but the church despised them. The church has become so good at pronouncing condemnation to those 
who have done nothing wrong, that those who need, that need God the most never hear the message of God. God hasn't called the church to prick the consciousness of this world and to point out sin where sin arises. Absolutely so. But the problem is that we think we do that best through judgment and condemnation. But nowhere does God grant us the power to condemn. He only grants us the power to love. Love has a far greater power to change the world than condemnation. Friend, where are we? Where are we at Memorial Baptist Church? Are we willing to love the individual? I'm not saying we love the sinful act that they're in, but I'm saying can we love the individual enough to let God speak to them about their sin and not us? You want to know why so many churches are losing folks? Because they can't accept the sinful person. We just want people in our churches that are like us. And what are we? We're flawed, sinful human beings. It's just we don't have the same type of sins that others have. We can overlook our own. We can overlook our own sins. But boy, you bring somebody in here that's got something really going on in their life. And immediately we condemn. Friends, we really need to start opening our doors to people who have sin in their lives. Let God do the convicting. I started looking at this earlier in the week and I was reading about that and, you know, it really hit me. Sometimes I can be condemning. But I'm really trying to change my attitude. Again, it's not that I am going to accept a sinful nature, and I don't care what kind of sinful nature that is. But I'm not in the business of judging someone. Although sometimes I have. That's God's business. We're in the business, we should be in the business of sharing the gospel to whomever. To whomever. I spent Wednesday night, I was talking to a gentleman that had came and talking to him about some things. And he's younger. And I'm so thankful that there are people out there that are willing to look past the outer core of a person and look at the heart of a person to present the gospel to them. Are we willing to do that today? I know that I kind of skipped over verse 5. But you can look at that on your own if you'd like to. But it, again, I'll just read it here, verse 5. 
got to go back up to the top of all this to do it. Or is it back there? No, you don't have it up on the board. I, I don't think I told Lindsay we're going to do this. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you have the mind of Christ today? Is his thoughts your thoughts today? Or is there something totally, totally different? It wasn't Blackaby, I don't remember, but anyway, we did a study, not here at another church I was in, it was called The Mind of Christ. And at the end, it just challenged us. Challenged us to have the mind of Christ. Is that what you have today? Let's close in prayer as we prepare ourselves for this invitation time. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you again for this opportunity to preach this word. Lord, do we have the love? Do we have the humility to make unity amongst us? Guide us in this time of invitation. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Stand with me as we sing.